Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. Uh, you can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. Um, this evening we have two guests with us today, Austin McCormick, a pastor of Shepherd Baptist Church, and James Johnson, pastor or senior pastor of Vista Baptist Church. Uh, both of these men come to us uh, from Missouri. Uh, brothers, thank you for joining us this evening. Happy to be it's here. Good to be with you. So we wanted to talk a little bit about um, Reformed Baptist life, about you guys, about your podcasts and, and the ministry that you brothers are doing uh, through the Covenant podcast. Um, so, Sean, if you want to start us off. Yes, and it should be excellent discussion to have a fellow Reformed Baptist podcasters on. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about your uh, pastoral ministries. Uh, how long have you guys been pastoring and what led you to become pastors? Uh, I have been... This is Austin speaking now. My name is Austin McCormick. I am the pastor of Shepherd Baptist Church, as you mentioned. I've been uh, at this congregation for three years, and this coming November, um, I've been seeking to revitalize our congregation. Uh, some of the ways that that has been a, began to be accomplished is by implementing certain principles from the 1689 Confession, like for instance, the regulative principle of worship and trying to teach our church about regenerate membership, church discipline, the necessity of plurality of elders, although those things have not been implemented into the life of our congregation. Um, but I've been there for, like I said, almost three years now. And um, when I was a sophomore in college, I began to desire the office of overseer and um, I moved my family to uh, Northeast Louisiana, where I would train with a pastor uh, for a few years. And the church that I'm at now actually contacted me through mutual friends and asked if, um, if I would be interested in becoming their pastor. And they outwardly confirmed my calling and the inward desire that I had. So that's a little bit about my pastoral ministry. And this is James, as as was mentioned earlier, but I do go by the name Jimmy. I am the pastor of Vista Baptist Church in the middle of nowhere in, in Missouri. Uh, I have been here four years this October. So this month, it just turned October. So I've been here, been their pastor for the last four years. And similar to Austin, it is a revitalization or more re really a reforming project in, in many ways. And they've been very receptive to, to the things that I've taught and, and welcomed my family and I there. But really how I got there was just God's providence. I, I had never heard of Vista, Missouri or Vista Baptist Church. I was pastoring straight Bayou Baptist Church in Mississippi because I was going to Reform Theological Seminary at the time. I we found out that we we were having our first child and we wanted to be somewhat closer to family. My wife is from Missouri and out of the blue, I get a call from some guy asking me if I believe the doctrines of grace without even actually mentioning who he was. Like, that's how the conversation started. Um, is this Jimmy and do you believe in the doctrines of grace? <laughs> um, and I said, yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and he asked me to explain those and and then he actually told me who he was and and what he was calling about and I happened to be on vacation and was able when we got back from Washington state with a fa- on a family trip I was able to drive from St. Louis airport through to Vista Baptist Church and meet some of the people there and it was kind of like an impromptu interview and they seemed to think I was all right, so they had me come back, and I preached a few different times, um, and they eventually affirmed that I was gifted and called and was the man that they, they could see shepherding their flock, and unanimously voted me in, and I've been there ever since, and basically what I do what any pastor does. I preach the word um, three times a week out on a minimum, Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday evening. I meet one-on-one with several different guys, taking them through a curriculum that, that I wrote. And it's been good to, to see them grow in their understanding of the scriptures, as well as of our particular Baptist heritage, as I've been taking them through the confession of faith and the Baptist catechism. I also teach a group of pastors in India over Zoom through the Baptist catechism once a week as a part of a ministry of our church. So that's kind of what I, I do in a nutshell and, and enjoy doing it. So do both of you brothers, the, the churches you're at, so I'm assuming they it doesn't sound like they have any Reformed Baptist background. You guys are kind of re- trying to move them in that direction. Go ahead, Austin. My church has no Reformed Baptist background. Okay. So my my church, I would describe as broadly Calvinistic in terms that a majority of the people are friendly with the doctrines of grace, mm. though I wouldn't say that it would be confessionally Reformed Baptist by, by any sense of the word. And there have been certain ecclesiological practices that have led to unhealthy things, and, and we're trying to amend those, but they're open to to confessional um, Baptist identity and things like that. So a little bit different than Austin's situation, um, but still not your your straight-up trademarked Reformed Baptist church by, <laughs> any, by any means. I think most, probably most Reformed Baptist churches don't come from uh, just starting off being Reformed Baptist, I, I think there's probably a learning curve for a, a lot. I know with our church it was it was a it was a broadly evangelical Southern Baptist church, and then our pastor came in and started preaching on you know Reformed theology and bringing in confessionalism, and you know now we are a fully Reformed Baptist church, but it's usually a process. Um, so yeah, but turning to you know talking about your work in ministry at cbts um i th- my understanding is that your podcast is a ministry of cbts right is that correct that's not exactly um uh descriptive of of how it is i can okay. uh speak to that though yeah, yeah go to. ahead sure. uh, yeah okay um so um in 2019, I became a student at CBTS, and at that time, um, I think their marketing, uh, media marketing guy was just starting. So Rex, who is was the main mm-hmm. and only administrative person at the time, was doing all of the <clears throat> and um, on Facebook and on Twitter, he was doing some work with that, but um, 
they didn't have the Man of God podcast network as they now do. They have their own podcast. And around that time, I asked them if we could create some type of a clip in our podcast to just help share the school. So technically, we aren't and never have been a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. But um, and that may be unclear in the way that I worded the clips originally. I've always tried to say that we are a podcast brought in partnership with, meaning we promote the school and their teachings and we recommend them to you uh, wholeheartedly. So um, that's kind of how it started. Um, in 2020, Jimmy and I were invited to come to a module and host uh, a live podcast there. Uh, the class was on Benjamin Keach. So we were able to do uh, a live podcast with Drs. Tom Hicks and Dr. Chris Holmes on the life and the theology of Benjamin Keach. But uh, as far as our involvement, we are not formally CBTS's podcast. We're just friends that uh, like their school. So uh, I hope that answers the question. Yeah, yeah, no. It, I guess uh, I always kind of assumed it was just because you're of your close affiliation with it. And it. I guess I thought you were part of the Man of God Network, but that, that helps a lot. Now, what with regards to the name, um, what... Uh, got you guys to naming it the Covenant Podcast. Was there a theological reason behind it, or, or what was uh, what was the name from? Yeah, so I can speak to this one uh, as well. Um, when I was first converted by the grace of God, I was left with many questions that I had unanswered, uh, and someone on social media randomly messaged me and asked me if I was a dispensationalist or if I believed in covenant theology. And as a somewhat new convert to my shame, I didn't know what covenant theology was. <laughs> I asked the people around me, and they couldn't explain to me what covenant theology was. Um, Jimmy, not too long after that, became the pastor of the church that I was converted in but I was no longer going there. I had moved away. And um, my friendship with Jimmy really began with, hey, Jimmy, what is covenant theology? I didn't really get into who are you? Nice to meet you. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself. My first impressions of, uh, upon meeting him was, can you help me with covenant theology? And he did. Um, if I believe correctly, we began to read through uh, Nehemiah Cox and John Owen's book from the very beginning. And from there, he just started answering a lot of the questions that I had. And so as we thought about uh, rebranding this podcast and a name for it and cover art for it, I thought Covenant, uh, the Covenant podcast sounded uh, appropriate. Um, later, I find out that there's multiple varieties of covenant theology, that there's a paedo-baptist form of covenant theology. Uh, so perhaps reflecting backwards, I might have tried to think of a way to make it more baptistic or clearly baptistic, but I was very pleased to know that uh, Baptists have historically held to covenant theology. So that's a little bit about the name. I, I guess you played it kind of safe then by going with a generic name with uh, Covenant Theology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, what types of topics do you cover on your podcast? 
Well, um, we we cover a wide wide array of different subjects. Um, anything from Baptist history. There are biographies that we have of guys talking about their their life and their thought. Um, we've done stuff on early church fathers as well, and and a lot of what we do is we we send out emails to to scholars that know a lot more than we do about subjects that we're interested in, and ask them to come and talk about it at length, and just ask them questions. I mean, we've talked about theology proper, doctrine of the Trinity with 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 James Dolzell, and then we talked about deity and decree with Samuel Renahan. We've talked with Craig Carter about Christian Platonism. We even had like um, an informal discussion or debate, if you will, between a presuppositionalist, Chris Bolt, who is always a joy to have on, and then also Craig Carter, which was an interesting dynamic. So we, we cover all kinds of things, really. We've done hermeneutics. We've done missions. We did biblical languages not too long ago, um, talking with Olaf and Beth. Um, and yeah, so we just cover a wide range of different topics and many of them overlap with what you guys do. And sometimes are the exact same subjects and the exact same <laughs> authors <laughs> unintentionally, I, I, <laughs> or really, I just pull up yours and I say, we should, I'm going to call Ed Litton on you guys. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We, we just listen to yours and ask them the same exact question over and over again. But, but yeah, yeah. So that's, that's in a nutshell of what we cover just a whole bunch of stuff. Now you guys, so you said you, you actually had a debate with um, Chris Bull and Craig Carter. So does Craig Carter take a more, um, classical apologetics yeah. approach. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, he he took the classical approach, and and Chris Bold, of course, took the presuppositional approach. And through the discussion, they they really had a lot more in common than what often meets. Um, because no, I mean, it's the same with with classical apologetics too. No two guys are exactly the same under that monk here mm-hmm. of of classical apologetics, like. I mean, William Lane Craig would somewhat consider himself a classical apologist in some Oof. scenarios and aspects. And <laughs> I would not say he's the same as Craig Carter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <Not even laughs> <close. laughs> but yeah, but yeah, it was a good it was a fruitful discussion. Um, and they were both easygoing guys and, and got through it. And we got through it, even though we had no idea what they were talking about from time to time. <laughs> Just fielding the questions and making sure no one yells at each other, right? Yeah. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, so seeing as both of our podcasts at least have uh one similar goal of uh preserving and teaching uh particular Baptist theology, uh why do you uh both see the preservation of uh of our theology of particular Baptist theology to be so important that you would talk about it on a podcast? Well, I'll I'll speak for myself, and if Austin does have anything he'd like to add, he he can add it to me after I'm I'm done. But there was this time where I was taking a class on Andrew Fuller with with Michael Haken while at Southern Seminary, and he basically said that if we don't do our history, no one else will, um, because Baptists are typically neglected. By, by most church historians outside of the tradition. Now, a lot of Baptists, as Baptists, we study, or or at least I would say we should study a, a broad 
range of various church traditions, the Reformed tradition, medieval church, as well as the early church fathers. And, and you can broaden it out to, to all kinds of different traditions within the broad stream of, of the Christian history. But if we didn't, as Baptists, seek to preserve and teach our, our church history, our our contribution to church history as Baptists, then I think Dr. Haken is exactly right that no one else will, because Baptists are kind of we're we're like the redheaded stepchild of <laughs> of the the broader reformed movement, and and really people want to deny our existence or affiliation with them. Some Baptists want to deny our affiliation with with the broader reformed movement, but also some of the reformed also do not want in any way to to claim us, which is always a fun and and somewhat useless debate at the end of the day. But but yeah, I'd say one of our main or my main reasons is if we don't, then then really no one else will. And then secondly, I, I also believe that our expression of of the Christian faith and our approach to it and and our our practice and ecclesiology and baptism in particular is the most faithful expression of what holy scripture teaches so that's Amen. why i think it's important to preserve the baptist tradition and the particular baptists um in particular <laughs> <laughs> um yeah austin do you have anything to add to that not to this question yeah, it's it's kind of like um, Sam Ranahan has said that we really are um, taking the Reformed tradition to its logical conclusions, right? We're, we're basically looking back and going, well, you know, you know, we love our Presbyterian brethren, but you're just not there yet, brothers. <laughs> you're just not there yet. Um, so, yeah, and, and I think understanding our history can help us to um, avoid some of those pitfalls that we fall into, like covenant theology being one of them. You know, we, uh, I think among... Reformed Baptists, we have different views of covenant theology, even in our own circles that aren't always consistent with what we see historically. Um, So I think preserving that history, too, can be helpful to inform us, um, even in our theology, as we look at how the scriptures lay out God's redemptive plan. Um, But yeah, but I guess that leads us into our next question on, you know, preserving our history is important, um, but why is it important to recover it? You know, when we're, you know, we're why is it important that we see brother the, the Renahans, you know, Jim Renahan, Sam Renahan, and those brothers and Dr. Barcellus writing extensively on these topics um, and reco- really recovering what we've, like you said, Jimmy, we seem to neglect. Um, why do you brothers see the recovery of this is so important? I, I'll speak first to this and then Jimmy can go. Um, as you said, we, some of those brothers are doing excellent work to, recover historic particular Baptist Orthodox doctrine. Um, in my experience, uh, in the Baptist churches and the Bible belts throughout the middle of America, um, orthopraxy at times, the way we practice the doctrines that we believe is somewhat distanced from the right confession of doctrine. So I think a recovery of right doctrine is necessary to teach and instruct how we do the the formation of our church, how uh, our ecclesiology within the congregation is outworked, how this affects our biblical modeling of a congregation. Um, As we would all know, 
within Baptist life, more largely and generally, especially in the United States, it's been influenced by dispensationalism. And that has created not only certain hermeneutical presuppositions, but uh, eschatological conclusions that perhaps we would say are novel to Baptist life. And so the recovery of Baptist doctrine is important to, to teach what did particular Baptists actually believe. And whether we're well studied or not uh, in Baptist history, everybody wants to claim Spurgeon on their side. But whenever we're doing Baptist recovery, uh, Baptist doctrine recovery, Baptist church history recovery, and we go back to Spurgeon and we see what Spurgeon actually taught and what Spurgeon actually believed, we, uh, I don't know about you brothers, being already in a Reformed Baptist church, but us who are trying to do revitalization and trying to bring Reformation, we're greatly aided by using Spurgeon and saying, uh, this is what Spurgeon believed. Let's practice what, what Spurgeon believed. So, so those are the, some of the thoughts that I had in uh, relationship to this question. Yeah, I'll just piggyback on, on that answer and maybe add a little bit. Yes, and Austin and I are both pastors, as as we mentioned, and of course we're we're somewhat nerdy in that we like history and details and things like that about history and in particular Baptists specifically. But it is very practical to to demonstrate to a congregation, and even an old. I mean, the church I pastor in is well over a hundred years old but to demonstrate to them that the things that I'm suggesting that we we believe or do are not like just completely novel to this mm. under 30-year-old pastor who is telling them that that we should do this. I'm not just making it up as as I go and and using big names like like Spurgeon. Spurgeon's one that everyone recognizes of course or or not everyone, but a lot of people do recognize Spurgeon, but also bringing up the the lesser names and showing where they're from and and I wouldn't say they're necessarily lesser but like John Gill or someone like that that does have some recognition but still is not nearly as widely circulated as Charles Spurgeon or or Benjamin Keach so I mean just by putting things out like the glory of a true church in in the rack in the front of my church and giving it to people for free um has has already borne um fruit. And, and as I, I, I'm teaching through the Baptist catechism on Sunday night, and, and an aspect of doing that is I showed that, well, Baptists have had catechisms ever since their inception. I'm not just making up this new practice in Baptist life. And really, the, the cessation of catechisms amongst Baptists really was introduced in the last 110, 115 years. Um, so showing them that, that there is, that our forefathers aren't, weren't all stupid and, and they all already believe that, um, and saying, oh, well, here's what they did. And they're like, oh, okay, well, let's, let's try it. I mean, if it worked for these guys who I've read and, and stuff like that. Um, also, I, I think another reason it, it's important to recover our heritage as Baptists is I do think there is. A desire amongst many to have some sort of historical connection with with the rest of the church more broadly. And you see this in a variety of different ways. You see people who retreat to Rome 
there was a guy who identified as as a particular Baptist or a 1689 confessing Baptist that is now a Roman Catholic that I that I saw a few days ago. Um, Eastern Orthodoxy people going to that. But by looking at our roots as as particular Baptists, we can see that Baptists are not just this disconnected renegade movement, but they really do fit within the broader Christian tradition, that they are not completely a new thing. Now, there are things that they did that were radical um, at at that point in history in which they they came into existence in the 17th century, because as we would say, error had error had permeated the the church for a long period of time. And though there were glimpses and shimmers of truth all the way through that period, the the era of infant baptism, as as our Baptist forefathers, was just a carryover from poppery. And <laughs> so but still not divorcing ourselves entirely from from the Christian tradition, saying we're we're just some r- weird movement that that has no connection with anyone else as as some baptists have tried to do in the past to separate us in the landmark movement and movements such as that but i disagree with them i think you can actually trace our history through the broader christian tradition and help those people who do desire for more historical rootedness um and i'm one of those people so it, it also helps me too so that would be, in a nutshell, a few different reasons why we both think that it would be important to recover our heritage. And isn't it, it it's really neat when you see um, the the things that we confess and believe now, you see that rooted in history. You you, you get excited because you're like, wait, I didn't come up with this. You know, mm-hmm. and I see this. Someone else thought this through as well. And you can kind of piggyback on on the backs of those men who are far smarter than I am and who have done all the you know done the heavy lifting for us so it, it really is a joy to be able to go back and see that um you know the things that they our particular baptist forefathers dealt with and and uh how we can apply that today and to understand our confession of faith you know we say we believe this document the 1689 you know what does it even mean you know there there are things in there sometimes that are not always very clear or um, that require a little bit more understanding i think from the from historical background so having that um that history recovered i think helps us to understand what we confess better uh, in our confession so in uh doing the podcast um have you encountered anything that uh surprised you or you found very interesting about particular baptist history any interesting tidbits um i'll be somewhat brief and say uh, a lot of the things that have been interesting and intriguing to me have been the nerdy historical facts. Um, you brothers may know better than me, but uh, concerning Nehemiah Cox, I just don't know a ton out there written about him. So whenever we were able to do uh, an episode with James Renahan doing a biography on Nehemiah Cox, I learned that Nehemiah Cox had some type of a medical degree. and mm-hmm. That was really shocking to me. I had no idea of that. That whole conversation was extremely uh, enjoyable. Um, in preparation for a paper that I wrote, and then we also took the content and turned it into uh, an episode on neonomianism. Jimmy alluded to the poppery in a new dress earlier. Um, learning of Richard Baxter's neonomianism and Benjamin Keach's writing against it. 
And also John Owen writing against it was extremely helpful for an episode that him and I did for me to learn what was happening in, in that context, uh, context in regard to particular Baptist history. And I had one more uh, illustration off the top of my head that I'm failing to remember now. So I'll punt to Jimmy. We've had several guests and talked about several subjects. I mean, when we, we talked about R.C. Ryle, who, who is not <laughs> is not a particular Baptist, but still a fascinating figure nonetheless, just his his devotion to to pastoring the people under him in, in terms of visitation or writing his expository thoughts on the four Gospels. Like that was something that, I mean, that was, I don't know, groundbreaking to me. It, it was convicting to me as a pastor um, and, and putting me a more earnest desire to visit and, and talk with my people and really expound the word to them, not only from behind the pulpit, but also within their home. And that's, born great fruit. Another one was when we were talking about, oh, I can't remember the woman, Selena, Selena, um, a recent one. Selena Hastings. Yep. Selena Hastings. That, that was a fascinating figure in history that I had never heard of. Like she was not on my radar at all. And just her contributions to the great awakening and particularly to the ministry of guys like George Whitfield, that was just fascinating stuff, as well as to find out that they use in her seminary, because she also started a seminary, that they used John Gill's writings and Benjamin Keach's writings in this mm. this Methodist, although Calvinistically leaning, seminary later on. But still, it was it was kind of fascinating. And I asked if she had, because she would have been a contemporary of John Gill, I asked if they had interacted. And of course, there's no way to know unless there was some letter and that hasn't been discovered yet. But that was a fascinating thing to me. And, and I was pleasantly surprised to find those works cited as the bibliography that was used in the classes for training the preachers that that Selena would put in her various chapels that that really helped bolster that great awakening on the the England side of it. Other things that, well, I mean, the debate was interesting, um, hosting a debate, learning how to to do that and and being someone who is, I mean, we're just pastors. I, I don't have an advanced degree by any means, um, but talking with, with both Chris Bolt and Craig Carter about metaphysics, something, a word that I hadn't heard all the way through seminary, really, until the last year of seminary or so. And I heard that from talk reading Craig Carter was the first time I had really ever heard, heard that term and then talking with him afterwards. And then that debate, just seeing that stuff fleshed out and seeing two brothers in Christ, both Baptist, both confessional, at least I'm not exactly for sure where Chris Bolt actually lands on that, but I, I'd assume he's confessional. Um, seeing them both disagree about some things, but being able to come to agreement on those those most essential things. Even in apologetic methodology, there was a lot more overlap there than what I probably would have thought initially between a classical theist or a class, not, they're both classical theists, but a classical apologist and, and a presuppositionalist. So yeah, we've learned a lot. I mean, we've we've covered a lot of ground. I learned that James Dolzell is one of the smartest men I've ever talked to. <laughs> that, um, that is for sure. <laughs> yes. And and just what I think was awesome about him, T 
to me is just to see how passionate he was to explain the deep things of God, such as the Trinity, at a level that that anybody could could grasp onto and begin to to contemplate the triune God. And I mean, as I listened to him, I, I found that very not necessarily convicting, but motivating to strive to to a deeper and greater knowledge myself so that I may also teach such things to those who God has put under my care. But that said, we've talked to a lot of other guys. I mean, Richard Barcelos and in, in getting the garden right, as well as the the Trinity and creation. There's a lot to learn in both those books. Um, and then Austin did one on the Christian Sabbath, which was a really, really good mm-hmm. one. Yeah, that's one of the, I think one of the things that I love about doing podcasting in theology is that the, the, like you said, Jimmy, the stuff that you learn, right? You, you learn so much and you're kind of, uh, it's like when you teach, um, Sean and I both, uh, teach at our church sometimes in our Sunday school and it, you're, when you're forced, I went, I, I use that term very loosely, but forced to study and learn these things, you're, um, you really acclimate that knowledge over time. And then, like you said, you can start taking that and putting it towards practical teaching of others and, and using it to minister to God's people. Um, but it's just amazing how much information is out there historically and theologically that we can study in our own heritage and biblically speaking that I, I think um, I would not have otherwise been able to do without doing a ministry like this. Um, so there is, there's really joy and, uh, and it's really neat to see what you learn from it. How do you want to add anything to that, Sean? No, just a comment about teaching. Um, it really does force you to know why you believe what you believe. Yeah. Cause I've gone in, uh, teaching sometimes it's like, oh yeah, I believe this, but then really thinking about it is like, okay, why, why do I believe this? And then occasionally changing your mind about something, you know? Mm. Um, Yeah. So you guys are both, um, both your churches are members of the SBC from what I, I was able to gather. Um, how is the resurgence of, of particular Baptist or Reformed Baptist theology faring in the SBC? I know we have um, like Brother Askell with Founders is doing a lot of good work there. But uh, how do you see Reformed theology and Reformed Baptist theology faring in the SBC? Uh, I, I think it's a mixed bag. I have mixed the, feelings about it personally. Um I I think that there are some places where where it is doing well and and I mean you have the caricature of the the 1689 monk here that often appears on on social media as as angry guys that are always just wanting to fight and argue with people and I and truth be told though I don't think social media accurately portrays the movement as a whole those guys do exist. I mean, yeah. <laughs> they make us all look bad. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they do exist and, and they do go into Southern Baptist churches sometimes and they, they blow them up um, and put a bad taste in the mouths of those people and people who know those people. So, I mean, I'd say it's mixed when you have pastors that go to a place for a long time and patiently shepherd people in in the right direction i mean it, it's as jesus said his sheep hear his voice and if you're mm-hmm. patient and you keep teaching them the truth and showing that you love them as their pastor and you're not just leading them into all kinds of crazy stuff i think reformation on a church level is i'm optimistic about things like that 
um and and i think in different places and you might see it happen more often but i mean in terms of where i'm at right now at vista baptist church there is not a 1689 confessing church within an hour or two hour radius i mean the nearest one is probably in kansas city well actually i take that back an hour there's probably one in springfield missouri which is a good sized town um, but there aren't many is my point, especially amongst the rural, which is where I'm at. Now I'm in ranching country. So in the rural churches in, in the middle of nowhere in Missouri, there are not many confessing churches to the point where I met a gentleman last week. He's a member of the Reformed Baptist Church, Kansas City, and he actually moved out of town to about 40 minutes from me. Kansas City's two hours from me where where i live and he's still commuting an hour and 20 minutes because there are no reformed baptist churches now on wednesday nights he comes to vista baptist church and and brings some of his kids because we we are the closest thing to to a reformed baptist church and and that is mainly just because i i hold to the 1689 and a few other brothers in the congregation do too but I, I see progress in my own church. They're willing to receive it. They let me teach about it. They let me talk about it. We give to Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. I mean, and and the church is happy and excited to do that, loves to get their letters and, and hear about that. And then, I mean, they're letting me teach them through the Baptist Catechism. So, I mean, I'd, I'd say we're faring pretty well so far. I mean, it could blow up. I don't know. <laughs> but, I mean, just... In in the church, my point is trying not to ramble too long about it, the point is that on a church level, I'm optimistic about it. Um, and and I don't want to answer the next question too much, but on a denominational level, and really it's kind of improper to call the SBC a denomination on many points because it's not mm. top or it's not supposed to be a top down mm. <laughs> governance governance of of local churches, but on a convention level, I'm I'm not super optimistic about mm-hmm. particular Baptist churches faring super well. Part probably mainly because of a few bad and loud outliers of those that claim the 1689 confession. I think that's something that's always going to be an uphill battle. There's like a cage stage confessionalism, kind of like Calvinism, amongst yeah. some. And and you, I would say that's not the case most of the time with those that are confessional because they've already gone through the cage stage of Calvinism and decide they don't want to do that. But sometimes there is this holier-than-thou uh, approach from those that hold to the 1689 confession toward those within Baptist churches that do not hold and to And you that. also have guys like Leighton Flowers who are actively trying to suppress any kind of yeah. Calvinistic resurgence too. But yeah. Yeah, you do. You do have that, and and again, I think that's more limited to certain ge- because the SBC is huge. Right. It's limited to geographical areas. Like my people yeah. have never heard of Leighton Flowers. I mean, and <laughs> and will never listen to him. Um, so it's like in certain pockets you have that. There are some guys in Missouri that are similar to Leighton in in that way, but definitely don't have a huge reach. Um, and and my even folks, Missouri is is regionally yeah. uh, more receptive in some areas to the doctrines of grace than it is in other places like yeah. the rural parts. Wouldn't you agree with that assessment, Jimmy? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have more reformed Baptist churches in cities by far 
than than in rural area. I mean, I went to a 1689 church in St. Louis when when I went to college there. There are several there, not just one. There there are several that that confess the 1689, and within really an hour radius of that, you can just find tons of them. Most of them are also SBC um, affiliated, but you have tons of confessional churches in that area. But you branch out to to the middle of Missouri to southern Missouri, you're just not gonna gonna find a whole bunch. And I think that might be actually true of a lot of different states. Just mm. the reform movement as a whole has not done as well amongst rural context and and part of that might be because it's not really as attractive of a a place of ministry for church planners and young guys to go there's you don't gather much clout by going and hanging out with the cows you (laughs) or or the people who who care for them and i think that sometimes now i'm from a semi-smaller town austin's from a an actual small town, but I, I do think that there could be more Reformed Baptist church planting, or at the very least, an intentional effort to reform churches in rural areas. And I think that that would make the particular Baptist theology fare a lot better in the SBC than it has in the past. Hmm. Austin, do you want to add anything else? Um, this kind of relates to think another question that you might ask us, but I was at the last uh, SBC national meeting in Tennessee. And as I was sitting in the meeting, I won't give the person who was speaking, but I heard a very pragmatic program driven presentation about we need to push more baptisms. We need to dunk as many people as we can between this certain age group. We need to give a bunch of money through Uh, the cooperative program, and we need to be very intentional about meeting these pragmatic goals. And I remember walking out of that meeting, just being absolutely angry, heartbroken, Mm. sad with a mixture of feelings, and going up to a solid 1689 brother. And I asked him what, and he said, if you think the SBC at large at this big of a stage with the 15,000 messengers that are representing the SBC are going to return to their roots as a huge denomination, then you're in this for the wrong thing. You really need to view the SBC as an opportunity to partner with people that are going into foreign countries and trying to share the gospel with people and as an institution or a missionary opportunity or a partnership for the theological education through Southern or Midwestern or um, the seminaries. He said, if you can see the SBC as a way to partner with those uh, entities, then it's a useful ministry. But if you think you're going to reform it at large, um, it's probably never going to happen. And I I share the same sentiment as, as Jimmy. At the local church level, I think if a pastor is patient, and willing to stay for a while and uses the documents of the SBC, the Baptist Faith and Message uh, 2000, and a lot of the church documents that oftentimes are rooted in particular Baptist ecclesiology or something like it, then reformation can be accomplished at the local church level. So local church level, again, I share the sentiment with Jimmy, optimistic, 
large tent umbrella. I'm extremely pessimistic. <laughs> wow. Wow. So that does pretty much answer the next question, which was going to be, do you see the SBC returning to its roots? Uh, so in that case, I will steal the last question from Dan. Um, is there anything we can pray for uh, the both of you? Yeah, thank you for uh, asking us that question. Uh, I'll start with my family. My wife is 21 weeks pregnant today. Um, oh, congrats, brother. Thank you. Uh, we're having a boy. And his name will be Benjamin, uh, perhaps named after some particular Baptist. <laughs> With perhaps. no name, Keech, right? <laughs> Benjamin Elias, perhaps named after another particular Baptist. <laughs> um, so, yes, if you would pray for my coming son, Benjamin, and my wife, uh, Rachel, and uh, we would be very appreciative for that. Um, pray for our church that the gospel would go out, that people that are coming to our church would be converted, that people would be receptive to the teachings and would receive the word with gladness and that the word would not only be delivered by the power of the Holy Spirit, but that it would also be received in the power of the Holy Spirit as well. Um, I'd pray for my family, pray for our church, and perhaps if you remember, pray for our podcast ministry, and, and I'd be very appreciative and thankful. Absolutely. We'll do. Yeah. Um... I, I would echo pray for pray for myself and pray for for my family and for for my church. Um, I'm in my hometown right now in Mattoon, Illinois, because we're in the process of moving my dad to five minutes down the road from us in Missouri because he had some some health issues and 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 things that he needs my help with as his only child. So we're working through that and figuring that out as well as that just adds all kinds of different complications and, and things like that, that, that wouldn't have been there before, but I'm glad that he's going to be down the road and, and I can love him as his, his son and honor him as, as he ages and goes through, through difficulties, but pray for me in that pray for him. Um, pray that I'm patient and pray that he, he receives my help with, with patience and, and grace. Um, also our, our church, this is a praise and, and a petition has been growing somewhat rapidly, um, for, for a variety of reasons, but it has been, and that, that brings difficulty, um, as well when, when you have more people to pastor. So be praying for our church and just wisdom and, and, and what next steps should be and whether or not we should consider bringing on somebody in the future or something like that. Um, or just direction and to steward well what God has given us in terms of both people and resources in a way that honors him as well as just loves the people very well that make up our membership. And pray for me as I seek to lead them in doing that and trying to think if there's anything else. My dad's the main one. We've also had several people who have either been very, very ill lately or, or we've had a few folks in our congregation pass away recently. Hmm. So, so be, be praying for them um, and, and praying for their families, rather, of course. Pray for the people that are sick and pray for the families of those that have lost loved ones, as well as our, our church family, as we love those people dearly um, and, and miss them already. Um, but yeah, that would be the main things that, that we need prayer for. 
All right. Well, brothers, we will definitely keep you both in your your ministries and prayer. Thank you so much for coming on today. We really appreciate it. It's really good to fellowship with other brothers of like mind. You know, when we're we're, we're of like mind, we we feel so close, even though we're we're so far away. So it, it's a blessing to fellowship with other like minded brothers. Um, and with that, everyone, thank you for joining us this evening. Um, Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Um, and with that, take care.